little story of when I was a young boy in Little League, maybe nine or ten years old, something like that. I was playing Little League baseball, and I played second base. And I, I was a pretty decent, you know, second base baser. You know, I was a starter. And I had a lot of confidence in what I could do as a second baseman. But however, I had my eye on the pitcher's mound. Every game, I would watch the pitcher up there higher than everybody else, and everybody's looking at him, and I thought, you know, I got a good arm. You know, so I would bug my coach about pitching. And game after game, I would just bug him and ensure him that I could pitch. I'd be a great pitch, you know, pitcher. Put me on the mound, coach. And after literally months of this, we were in a game, and we were already, you know, it was only the second inning, and we were already down by four or five points. It was obvious that this team was going to beat us. And so, once again, I approached my coach with confidence that I could bring us back. And so, having had enough of me badgering, he said, all right, Micah, you're on the mound. So I grab the ball and I strut out to the mound and the catcher throws me, you know, looks at me and I look out in the stand and all those people are watching me and with great confidence, I threw my first pitch into the dirt. (laughs) And so the second pitch was a ball outside. Third pitch, ball, fourth pitch, ball. I walked my first batter. And of course, I just assured myself, you know, that's just, you know, I'm just getting warmed up. And so then I walked the second batter and the third batter, and now bases are loaded. And then I walked the fourth batter. I walk, as I walked in, this fourth batter, you know, walking a run into home plate, the other team, in the other team's dugout, they're laughing. The parents in the stand of our team, they're moaning and rolling their eyes. And I look at my coach, you know, in his dugout with this look, please, please get me off this mound. And he just smiles at me and just nods as if to say, nope, just keep going. He was going to make sure that I never bugged him again about pitching. And so I I threw another pitch and another and another. And I walked my sixth batter, seventh batter, eighth, ninth. I walked 10 runs in that, that one inning, bringing the score to 15 to nothing in the third inning. And I'll never forget how embarrassing it was for me and my whole team. So finally, the coach, he, he brings me out, he sends in the real pitcher, and he puts me back at second base. And I'll never forget how embarrassing it was standing there next to second base, just thinking about how confident I had been in my own ability and my own skill. And I still remember that pain today. And I think about it. Every time that God asks me to step out, you know, in faith. And so at that point in my life, I I had this embarrassing moment. And I'm sure that a lot of you have had similar embarrassing moments that are formative in your childhood, or, or it may have been, it was, maybe it was yesterday. But today, what I want to talk about is how to have the kind of confidence that's unshakable that God created you to have. And so building on last week, which was the first session in this series that we're calling Mind Control, we learned that we have to get to a place to where we starve our, our fear and feed our faith with the Word of God. And we figured out that what consumes our mind, what you think about on a regular basis, will actually control your future. That we've got to get Scripture into us. We have to get into the Scripture so that Scripture can get into us. And that our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. 
So today we're picking up this idea uh, with a question of how do we build strong confidence in who we are, not only as people, but also as Christians and who God has made us to be. Because like my Little League story, there are always going to be times when we struggle, we stumble, we fail. And it, what? And the question is, what does that do to us going forward? And how do we build rock-solid confidence that's not affected by the situations around us, our own performance and maybe failures, the, the election? When the world seems insecure, how do we be secure in that world? Because, you know, let's be honest. Every single one of us, we lack confidence in some area. You know, it could take the form of maybe a people pleaser. You know, these are the people that are always sucking up to the boss or wanting to say the right thing or be in people's good graces. These are what, or you could be one of the people that's called the, that we call fishers. They're fishing for compliments, right? You know these people, you know. Uh, it might be the lady that takes, you know, takes selfies and puts it on Instagram, you know, and they're, they're maybe without makeup and they're just flawless and all of the other ladies want to wanna vomit because she's perfect. Um, and she's just trying to get a compliment about how pretty that she is. Or maybe that's the one-uppers, you know, the, that has a better name to drop or a better de- they got a better deal than you on this. All of these are just mechanisms to actually deal with the disease that many of us have. Uh, and and if actually every one of us deals with at some level or another. And it doesn't make, make us feel bad. It doesn't only do that. It robs us from the life that God has created us to actually live. And it's going to lead us to maybe not interview for that job. What's the point? I'm not going to get it anyway. Or I'm not going to get into that school. Why even apply? Or I'm not going to get sober today because most likely I'm going to pour a glass tomorrow. So what's the use? This is not a way to live. You know, these inadequacies help us, keeps us from the things that God knows are best for our lives. And we struggle as a people with self-confidence. Well, if there's anything that you get today, here's what I want you to get. And that is that we do not need more confidence, more self-confidence. Here's what we need. We need to actually cultivate, and and that word is very intentional. We have to cultivate God-confidence. We don't need self-confidence. We need to find a way that we could live our lives with a sense of holy boldness. Because look, if I place confidence in me, Jeremiah 17 says that my heart, that the human heart is deceitful. So why would I place confidence in a heart that is deceitful, that it's going to lie to me? And Jesus actually said that the flesh is weak. And we don't want to put confidence in our own weak flesh. Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 7, he said that, he said, my behavior is inconsistent. And then David, David watched this, watch this in Psalm 57. He said, my heart is confident in you. My heart is confident in God. Hmm. No wonder that I can sing your praises is what David says that our lives just seem to, to flow out of a, a deep sense of identity of who God is in our lives and who he says that we are when we understand this. So today, I just want to give you some truths to help cultivate, there's that word again, a sense of God confidence. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern and the culture 
of this world, but instead be transformed. And how are we transformed? He says, by the renewing of our minds. We talked about this last week. And the reason that we renew our mind is because we can replace the lies with the truth of who God says we are. You see, that it says here that that is good and acceptable will of God. And the Apostle Peter actually dealt with this as well. Now, we know Peter in the Gospels as this hot-headed, you know, jump first, think later, brute force kind of a guy. And sometimes, not all the times, because, you know, that personality or, or those kind of knee-jerk responses in people stem out of a confidence problem. And so decades later, after Peter, um, after Peter you know, began the church, he, he began to write a letter to, to believers. And in 2 Peter, he's warning believers against false teachers that have invaded the Christian community and is eroding Christian confidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And Peter wanted to use his experience with Jesus and the decades after that to actually help instill in them confidence in their own Christianity and who they are in Christ. And so this, it, this whole book of 2 Peter was probably written in Rome, somewhere between 65, 68 AD. It was written in a time when Nero was the emperor over Rome. And Nero was known for being just a horrible human being, no morals, no principles. He was violent. He was an incredible, volatile leader that created this, this unsure, unstable, unsteady climate in every way, politically, governmentally, socially, in every way. And Peter is writing to an insecure church or insecure churches um, that is because of the context of their environment in the nation that they live in. So they were in the middle of this insecure situation. They had no idea what was going to happen from day to day. And in fact, this book of 2 Peter, as he's writing it, he actually knows that he's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to be martyred for his faith. In 2 Peter 1.13, he says, I think there's a right to refresh your, minute, your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know I will soon be putting it aside, speaking of his body. And he says that Jesus had made it clear to him about this. And so he would, as he writes this, he knows that he'll be crucified or at least killed directly after this. And because he wouldn't renounce Jesus's resurrection to Nero. So Jesus has made it clear to him that he's about to be martyred for the faith. And so if you're here today, and maybe you haven't decided on this Christianity thing, maybe you still question the resurrection, you know, if as if all, you know, just, is all this stuff true? Well, I want you to know that historically, we know outside of the Bible, we know that, G, that Peter was martyred by Nero. And in fact, all the disciples died in horrific ways, just like Peter did, because they believed in something that they said they were eyewitnesses to. If they had made all this stuff up, then they would not have been willing to die horrific deaths for something that was just a hoax. That's one of the major historical proofs of the resurrection that historians point out. There were a lot of proofs of the resurrection, and I covered those in, in a message called Five Historical Proofs of Jesus about a year ago, and you can search for that on YouTube or find it on our website. But one of the most impressive proofs is that all these men were willingly martyred instead of just simply recounting the resurrection. 
I mean, all they had to do was say, no, 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 we made it up. Don't kill me. We'd rather not be burned to death, crucified, boiled in oil. But Peter had such conviction of his, of his belief in the resurrection that he actually requested to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. These men's conviction was way, way beyond hoax. And so God has told Peter he's about to be martyred, which explains the forceful tone of 2 Peter. Because as an eyewitness of Jesus on this earth, he is watching the young church be tempted to splinter into multiple divisions and stray from Jesus' clear teachings of how we are to be confident in Christ. And Peter reaches out to them teaching them, underscoring that the Bible is true, authoritative, and is actually infallible. And so 2 Peter is so clear about a lot of things. I mean, Peter never was one to mince words, and he opens up this book with something so valuable, so life-changing. Because this, you see, this is the last thing that he will write before he dies. So he opens up the the book in chapter 1, verse 3, and he says this, His divine power. Speaking of Jesus, his divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. Well, that term, his divine power, you see, this was a term that was used by the Jews when they didn't want to speak God's name out of reverence and honor for it. And so they would just use this term. They wouldn't say Yahweh. They would use this term because his name was too holy to actually speak. And it's, but it says that God has given us everything that we need for a godly life. And you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa hang, hang on, Peter. You're getting ready to tell us that you know you're getting ready to be killed for your faith. And you say that God has given you everything for a godly life. And it kind of sounds, sounds like God's given you everything for a godly death. And, but these things, these instructions from Peter come from somebody who was so confident because he had already died to himself. So confident that the fear of death had no, comp- had no power over him or his confidence. See, that's the confidence that I want. I think that's the confidence that you want. That's the confidence that Peter wanted for us and the confidence that God wants for us as well. That God has given us everything that we need for a godly life. Because we want to live a godly life. We want to live a godly life full of strength, full of confidence, that no matter what comes against us, that we, we are unshakable. We are not consumed by fear, by worry, or by insecurity. Because remember, what consumes our minds controls our future. You see, we want strong and godly families. We want families that are becoming strong, that are becoming ministry-minded, outreach-minded. We want strong marriages where we are a strong team. We want to be loving parents who are, who are influential leaders of our children. We want strong children who are becoming arrows in the hands of warriors, as the Bible puts it. We want godly lives and strong faith so that we can be a light to our world, that, that God working through us in our schools, in our work, that we want to have the strength and the confidence to love people that nobody else can love, that we could pray for the sick and that we could resist the temptation that the world brings us on a regular basis, that we could be able to mentor other people in the faith that, who are not as far along as we are that we would have the strength, the confidence to be able to do those things. But the question is, how? How, Peter, how has God given this to us? 
So he says, his divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge. This is the key. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us everything that we need for a godly life, this confidence that we have in him through our knowledge of him. And this knowledge of him is true knowledge of his nature, his dignity, his benefits, his personality, everything. He has to be the very center of our confidence. A knowledge of him is the center of your confidence. We call it self-confidence, and it is your confidence. It is my confidence. However, it's been given to us, and we got to remember that. And so, therefore, your self-confidence, it has to be God-centered. Your self-confidence must be God-centered to stand up in the world around us. Any confidence that we have in ourselves because of our own accomplishments or value, look, all that stuff is subject to our own performance. And in and of ourselves, we are valuable not because of other people's, you know, opinion of us or our performance. You know, if you show off something that you're proud of, let other people criticize it and then check your emotions and see what your confidence level's like. Because when confidence is God-centered, it's based upon your knowledge of Him, who He says you are, that you are a king or a queen within this kingdom that he created for us to live and work and operate in. It's where your value was set by what somebody would invest in you, by what somebody would pay for you. You see, this is the knowledge of God in your life, that the Father, he paid a price for each and every one of us, for you. But the price he paid, the Father, he paid Jesus as a price for your life. And so what is your value? Something is, only as va- something is only as value as what somebody will pay for it. And the Father, he paid Jesus. Think about it. He paid Jesus for you. And that, my friends, that's where our confidence comes from. God centered on the knowledge of him, not others' opinions, not our performance. His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. So his divine power has given everything that we need for a godly life. So what is the purpose? What is the point to him giving us those things for for a godly life? Look at verse 4. It says, through these, he has given us every great and precious promise. So that, so that his divine power, he has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. And through that, he's given us every great and precious promise. So that. So that, that means that there's a purpose for everything that he's given to us, all of the promises of God. And that purpose is to give us the promises, the precious promises of God. And that includes salvation and includes our authority in him, which involves healing, provision, deliverance, protection, and then also even our calling and purpose in life that we could be difference makers, that we could be life changers in the world that is around us, that we could be a light to the world that is around us through our unity and our love, higher love, that we could have culture-disrupting unity in a time where everybody is at each other's throats. So that, so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. So he circles back around to this idea of this divine nature. Now remember earlier in in verse 3, he said that his divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. 
Watch what Jesus does here. He t- or Peter does here. He takes this, this Jewish view that God is so high here and, and God was too high and holy to be touched and to the point that they couldn't pronounce his name. And, they, and he made God attainable through a personal relationship with God. He made it to where this unattainable God could live on the inside of us. And Peter points to this through this term, the divine nature saying here in verse 4 that through them through him you may participate in the divine nature referencing what he said in verse 3 his divine power this term that was used for god and so it, they would be like what i mean you you're saying that we could actually participate that god is not untouchable anymore that with all this god has given us everything that pertains to a godly life and through that we can have the promises of god so that we can participate in this divine nature that before was too holy to even be said? See, this would be absolutely heretical. This was a total shift in how people would see themselves in relationship to God. It was saying that our confidence is no longer determined upon us and how we perform or what other people's opinions are of us. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter what people think of us, no matter who accepts us, that our confidence can be and should be God-centered because your self-confidence might be God-centered. It has to be God-centered. And that's not to bring God down at all. That's where God brings us up as heirs, joint heirs in this kingdom of God because he's still worthy of all the praise uh, of you dedicating your life to them or to him. He's worthy every day of our life in full. He's worthy of every word that we speak, every breath. There's nobody like him. And when we begin to open up our eyes to see who he is and a knowledge of him, and we properly place ourselves underneath him, then we can partake in his divine nature. There is nothing in my performance or what people think of me that would lead me to believe that I could do any of that. My self-esteem can't get that high in and of myself. I can't perform that well. People can't think that highly of me that I could participate in His divine nature. But once, once we can do that and we can fill up our hearts with that divine nature, it brings us to a place where God God can lead us to love those around us. He can lead us above the fray and above the chaos where we can stand in confidence on His light, His love, His word, and we can build our whole world around His love and His word and put our trust in Him. And no matter what is going on in the world around us, we will not be shaken because we have everything that we need to live a godly life through our knowledge of Him that we can participate and walk in His nature. I believe that that's what God has for you. And when we stop letting our confidence be determined by our performance or other people's opinions, but instead by who we are in Him and what we have in Him, you know what? Yeah, so maybe your husband or your wife left you or they broke it off, but your confidence, it's God-centered. Yeah, so maybe you've been out of work for a really long time, but your confidence is God-centered. Maybe you are battling sickness, but your confidence is God-centered. Yeah, maybe you did something and you feel like a lousy parent, but your confidence is God-centered. 
well, yeah, Micah, but you know what? If you know, it, we can't just not do anything productive and feel like we have great self-confidence. And you're right. But here's the thing. The amazing thing about real God-centered confidence is that the more confidence you have, the better you perform. Because when you stumble, when you fall, it doesn't shake the core of who you are. And so we actually perform better when we get our eyes on God instead of on our performance. We've got to get our eyes on Him and who He is in our life. Because a lot of times we think the better that we perform, the better a confidence we'll have. And the problem with that is as soon as you trip up, as soon as you don't perform, you lose confidence. So, dream with me for just a minute. What if, what if you, you saw yourself like Jesus sees you? as a partaker of his divine nature with everything that you need to live a godly life. And if you mess up, you go to the source of your confidence and you remember where it comes from. My friends, this is the moment. This is when you become a powerful Christian with, a pa with the power to change your life and therefore the power to change others' lives. The church at large, it's been so insecure and what if we as a church, as a whole church, put our confidence in God and his promises and not what's going on in the world? Look, there's a lot of things I'm really concerned about right now, but even if everything goes the worst I could imagine, I still have everything I need to live a godly life through my knowledge of him. So my confidence is not based upon anything in this world, but because I can participate in the divine nature of God because my confidence is God-centered, and your confidence is God-centered.